Welcome to Women in Venture Capital, a podcast by students for students. I'm Roshvina. And I'm Anvita. And we are from the Harvard Business School. Our guest today is Tony Mayo. Tony Mayo is the Thomas Murphy Senior Lecturer of Business Administration in the Organizational Behavior Unit of Harvard Business School. And lucky enough, my section chair and my lead professor. He currently teaches leadership and org behavior and authentic leader development in the MBA program. He recently co-created the HBS online course, Leadership Principles, designed to help new and aspiring leaders unleash the potential in themselves and others. Tony is the author of many books on leadership and management, the latest being Race, Work, and Leadership a rare and important compilation of essays that examines how race matters in people's experience of work and leadership. It's a real pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you. Uh, and good to see you again in a different <laughs> capacity. <laughs> yeah. So um, I was uh, curious as to what made you interested in exploring leadership and organizational behavior to which you have dedicated years of research and teaching. Well, it actually began back in college. I was a double major in organizational behavior and computer science, and this was back in the 80s. And so the jobs were in computer science, not in organizational behavior. So I sort of hedged my bets and majored in both. And when I graduated, I actually was a systems analyst, And I, but I did my systems analyst work and my computer work in the context of an HR organization. So I was able to blend uh, that work for a company called Digital Equipment Corporation, which doesn't exist anymore, but I, I work there. And so that was always my passion, uh, was about organization behavior, trying to understand how people operate, how they interact, um, how groups form and develop. And uh, I ultimately uh, pursued it full time as a faculty member at HBS later in my life. This is sort of like a second act for me. Uh, and I'm uh, thrilled to be able to do that. But I spent a year in business and focusing on uh, database marketing and advertising for a number of years and ultimately have come back uh, full circle to to my first love. Amazing. That's a really long journey. And it's actually really nice that you were able to pursue something that you thought about back in college. <laughs> yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about your most recent book, Race, Work, and Leadership. And I think it's it's very relevant to our podcast since we've been um, personally looking at, um, you know, disparities in representation um, at the corporate level in, in venture capital. Um, when did you start thinking about writing about race at the workplace? And were there any particular drivers behind the idea? How was the process like? Yeah. So, so the genesis of race, work, and leadership for me personally goes back a number of years. And so when I, uh, when I left industry and I joined the HBS faculty, the, one of the first people I met was Nithin Noria. The time he wasn't the dean, uh, but that fateful meeting with him ended up leading to a partnership where we ended up writing a number of books together and um, co-created a course and had the opportunity to collaborate on a number of other initiatives. And the second book that we wrote together was called Pass to Power. And that book, we tried to examine who has access to opportunity in the United States. And is America really a land of opportunity where that rags to riches story that we love to tell? Is that reality or is that a myth? And so we tried to examine that path and um, not surprisingly, uh, it's a, it's more of a myth. And, and the reason that we celebrate these larger-than-life figures is because they've broken through such uh, strong barriers. Uh, but in trying to understand the path to power uh, in business, we looked at race, gender, social class, um, uh, international status, birthplace, a number of different factors. And so we did a deep dive into race and 
uh, in that book, Pass to Power, and found that in particular, if you were an outsider, uh, and an outsider was defined as a woman, a person of color, a, a foreign born uh, in the United States, you were essentially an outsider for most of the 20th century. And so your path to power was different. And we found that there were four different paths to power. Uh, if you were an outsider, one path to power was place. And what we meant by place was that if you uh, had the opportunity to create a business, you often created it for your own community. So women creating businesses for women, blacks creating businesses for blacks. You didn't necessarily have this wide network to draw upon. So you you created a business for your for your own uh, community. Uh, if you had the financial means to leave an inhospitable place to go to a more hospitable place, uh, then you, uh, we saw that. So we saw a lot of migration, a lot of movement uh, during the 20th century, people um, uprooting themselves and going to uh, California, for instance, where there was potentially more opportunity. The second path to power was professional credentials. And we, we saw that the black executives on our list of great business leaders were far more educated than their white counterparts. So one way to get access and legitimacy was to get uh, education in, uh, in a particular education, often an Ivy League education, often multiple degrees. Uh, so that was a way to get this external market validation. The third path to power was professional networks, having somebody in your corner, a sponsor, uh, a backer, somebody who could help you along the way. Uh, and then finally, it was perseverance. And so every black woman on the list that we uh, analyzed was a founder. So there was no path to power in terms of executive leadership. You had to found your own business. And so we looked at those four P's, if you will, uh, place, professional credentials, professional networks, and perseverance, and mapped out that as a path for outsiders. And uh that leads to this book, Race, Work, and Leadership. So that was a while ago. We wrote this book. And then in 2018, Harvard Business School marked the 50th anniversary of the African-American Student Union. And as part of that uh, process, uh, Dean Noria asked if I would take a lead role in helping to facilitate some of the events associated with uh, what we called ASU 50. And I said I would if I had the opportunity to do some research and writing. And what I was particularly interested in is our Harvard uh, Black MBA graduates, do their paths map to the paths of the outsiders that I, we had studied earlier? So we looked at 20th century business leadership and paths to power, and we weren't, I wanted to understand, so our Harvard MBAs, Black Harvard MBAs, are they more like insiders or outsiders? If you think about HBS, it's the insider's inside path, right? This is an elite institution. Uh, you, you might expect that uh, students who come to this particular institution are going to have that inside track. And so that was really the genesis of the work on race, work, and leadership was doing a deep dive into the experiences of Black MBAs. And that's one of the chapters in the book. And as part of the celebration for um, ASU 50, we invited a number of different academics who are studying race to really help us understand what we can learn about the Black experience. A number of the themes that you brought up um, when you were writing Paths to Power actually really resonate with me. Um, the the point about, you know, the need for education or like you feel like you need those extra degrees to actually be at the same level. Mm -hmm. um, the need for sponsorship is something I've personally felt um, the need for on my path to something, I guess. Yeah, your <laughs> um, path to power. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, so I want to talk a little bit more about what your main takeaways have been um, mm. from this most recent work. Yeah. So I, I guess I should give the the uh, the corollary to what's happened with Black MBAs. It turns out they are more like outsiders uh, than insiders, and their paths have focused mostly on similar, similar patterns. Uh 
big focus on sponsorship, big focus on professional credentials, and a big focus on per- perseverance or entrepreneurship. So when we did a deep dive into the uh, MBA, uh, the Black MBA experience, uh, they were much closer aligned to the outsiders to the insiders. So that's a bit troubling. Maybe that's not surprising if you sort of look at access and opportunity and what are the key enablers and obstacles to success. And a couple of the things that we looked at, or what are the key enablers to success uh, for underrepresented individuals and organizations? And there were a few that we saw. So one is uh, visible uh, job assignments. A second is significant line management experience. And a third happened to be global assignments. So those three ended up being uh, some of the big markers of access to opportunity. It turns out that women and people of color are more likely to get visible job assignments, but less likely to get global assignments, and less likely to get significant line management experience. So you could look at that cynically and say, oh, organizations are getting credit for the visible uh, job assignments, but is that actually translating into significant line management experience, which you need to actually move up in the organization? Um, so that, so there were those three factors. The other factors that we, uh, we saw in terms of our research was that there was a big difference between formal and informal mentoring and sponsorship. And so a lot of organizations embrace formal mentorship programs, particularly for underrepresented individuals and organizations. And what we found in our research is that many of the individuals who partake in that found it useful, but not as helpful as organic relationships. There was a huge, almost a two or three times difference in the level of usefulness in terms of these organic relationships. And so when I talk to individuals about what they can do in terms of uh, um, helping the diversity, equity, inclusion in their organization, I can say, look, you can be a sponsor. If you're in a position of power, you can take this lead. You don't necessarily uh, have to expect the individual to come to you. You can be proactive uh, on that front. Because I think a lot of individuals, at least since uh, the more racial consciousness that we've had um, during the course of this year, have questioned their past practices and have thought, I want to do something, but I don't know what to do. And so I often say, you know, if you're an older white guy like me, uh, which uh, are the people, many of the people in positions of power, you have something that you can do. You can, you can be that sponsor. You can uh, support an individual. You can take that first step. You can initiate conversations about race. You can broaden the net of individuals you consider for opportunities. There's lots of things that we can do. Uh, a lot of times we feel like our hands are tied and, and we, we, we end up not doing it. It's easy to do nothing. And the other thing that we've learned through this is that what, what helps people move in the organization is critical developmental feedback and coaching. And we know that women and people of color are get the least amount of coaching and developmental feedback. And sometimes they get the less uh, amount because the manager is trying to in their head, do the right thing. Like they don't want to stumble. They don't want to say something that may be racist or sexist. And so I'm not going to give any feedback. I'm not going to say anything critical. Uh, But then that actually uh, disadvantages the individual because they're not getting that developmental feedback that they need, where maybe their white counterpart is getting it. And so at the end of the year, when you're doing evaluations, it's not a, a level playing field because somebody has inside information that the other individual doesn't. Those are really interesting. And it really takes me back to uh, a bunch of the classes that we've done, especially about feedback. And I am personally somebody who thrives with feedback. So uh, if I don't get it, I usually go in and try to get it from senior uh, leadership. But I agree. Um, There's a lot that can be done. It's um, sometimes you just need to nudge people in the right direction. 
I wanted to talk about your work and your views on gender disparity in the context of venture capital. Why do you think some industries are more successful uh, than others at bridging the racial and gender gap? Mm. Yeah, I'm not sure there's any huge success stories. I mean, I guess some, some uh, I, I like to say there, there would be, but there probably isn't. Uh, but I think if you look at the the world of finance, you look at particularly the world of venture capital, and you look at who's in positions of power in those uh, organizations, we tend to gravitate, hire people, invest in companies, people that are like us. It's this concept of homophily. We, we gravitate to people who uh, whose experiences we feel that we can relate to. This is the whole notion of unconscious bias, right? Uh, is that we're we're biased towards individuals who maybe are a younger version of ourselves or have similar lived experiences or we can connect on something. And you see, in, particularly in the world of VC, this big disconnect there in terms of being able to relate to the experiences, the business ideas, the individuals. And so even... You know, if it's uh, an unconscious bias, it's still a bias that um, leaves people out of the organization. It leaves people out of opportunities and access to capital. And so you see in VC, as I'm sure you've seen, is that um, people are taking the matter into their own hands and, you know, creating opportunities for themselves and looking, uh, you know, to support each other, similar to the place thing that I talked about, right? Look, if, if we're not going to get it from uh, the broader community, what can we do in our own community? Um, so I think part of it is that there's an entrenched sense. I think there's an awareness now. Uh, there has been an awareness for a long time. Has there been an appetite for change? Not as much. Because if you sort of look at what's in it for me, if I change the way in which I'm investing, if I change the way in which I build my team, I'm successful. So what is going to convince me that I need to do things differently? That makes sense. And the theme of this um, bias has come up in a lot of conversations we've had on this podcast about how usually you look at people who have similar experiences to you, who look like you. So it becomes really tough in a network heavy industry like venture capital for um, other communities, underrepresented communities to move up. One of the, uh, when you said that, sorry, uh, one of my, one of the venture capitalists uh, that I interviewed uh, so for some of the research we did, we, we looked at um, uh, senior African-American women who've made it in business. And one of them was a venture capitalist. And I asked her, you know, why there were so few uh, <clears throat> women in venture capital. And part of her answer, uh, which I thought was interesting, was the lack of networking. And so if you think about individuals who are underrepresented in the organization, they often double down in getting the work done. And they, they are focusing on the work and they're not focusing on the network. They're not focusing on the relationships. Should they have to do that? It should be a two-way two way street, as I said. But one of the one of her big issues was, look, we're not, we, uh, she's speaking a, a, as an African-American woman, we're not doing the networking. We're not putting ourselves in that position. We're doubling down on the work, thinking that that's going to re- get recognized. And ultimately, um, it might, but uh, in many situations, you actually have to put yourself into these contexts, into these environments. And because there's so many biases about the ways in which underrepresented individuals are evaluated at work. There's a doubling down on the work and any time that's outside of the work, whether it's networking or socializing or anything like that is viewed as uh, taking away from 
um, the evaluative uh, opportunities that the individual has. So you don't do them and ultimately it hurts you. Sorry that's about really that. <laughs> no, 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 that's, that's actually a really interesting point. Um, do you see a positive trend towards acknowledging that gap and making efforts to bring more diversity at corporations in the coming years? I do. I mean, we saw a lot of, and I'm a generally an optimistic person, so I'll say that right up front. Uh, I tend to be optimistic. Those in this year specifically. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, but I, it, but there's been a lot of positive talk, uh, you know, this year, whether that will translate into uh, further action, you know, time will tell, but I, I, I do think so. So I've seen action, uh, particularly um, in Silicon Valley and in the tech space, and I've seen a lot of tech CEOs. Yes, they say the right things and they do pledges and, and all of this sort of thing, but I've also seen them really trying to double down and figure out what can we do about this. I've seen other leaders and other organizations uh, try to do that as well. I mean, ultimately, it's going to uh, come down to whether you are hiring more people, whether you are providing the development of feedback, you're giving those opportunities. It's all well and good to say, yes, we want to have a more equitable, more diverse, more inclusive environment. But are we doing the th So one thing is getting people in the door, right? The other part is creating the culture and the context in the organization where those individuals can thrive. And so I think what we failed in the past is we might have like helped the pipeline um, but then uh, let people sink or swim on their own. And many of the individuals that I've interviewed have talked about the fact that, look, there's no scaffolding, there's no support structure. And so it's going to be difficult uh, to survive in this particular uh, or, uh, organization. Uh, and so I think organizations are more attuned to that. Uh, one of the things that particularly the focus on the Black experience this year uh, that's been important is that in many ways, organizations were trying to uh, make the diversity tent or umbrella, whatever metaphor you want, as big and wide as possible. So everybody was diverse, right? Diversity of thought and gender and race and sexual orientation, etc. And that's all well and good. But sometimes it uh, masks the real differences and the real challenges. Uh, one of my uh, co-authors, Laura Morgan Roberts, often talks about, you know, we, uh, by doing that, organizations are erasing race in the conversation because it's the most difficult and the most intractable uh, challenge uh, for people to talk about, to deal with. And so if you make this big, you know, writ large diversity initiative, it's easy to minimize that. And I think what's happened this year is and, and what's important about race, work, and leadership is that we focus on the Black experience. It's raised that level of consciousness uh, about particularly the Black experience and particularly the experience of, of Black women. And so I think from that vantage point, there's at least uh, resonance in the conversation today. And I think there's hope. Uh, so so I'm hopeful that, that we're moving in the right direction. Great. I am too. Um, so thank you so much for being on the show today. Um, I knew it was really interesting for me. And I know that I'm adding Paths to Power on my reading list um, for sure. And uh, I'm sure our listeners will really enjoy your insights as well. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for having me on the show.